For the last about two months, we've been looking at the different core values of the Christian Missionary Alliance, and Pastor Paul uh, said it well that we're not looking at these things just for us to have kind of like a a college class on what we as the Christian and Missionary Alliance believe, but we're looking at these core values because we really believe that these are all true success, that everything we have belongs to God. We are His stewards. Achieving God's purposes means taking faith-filled risks, and this always involves change. Completing the Great Commission will require the mobilization of every fully devoted disciple. Prayer is the primary work of God's people. Last week we heard, without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can accomplish nothing. And this morning, we are going to be talking about the seventh and final core value. Actually, in the list, it's technically the first one, but we've done it all out of order. Um, Today we're going to be talking about lost people matter to God. He wants them found. And Ashley said it well that there are people uh, all around us, all around our world, walking in darkness. They're lost, uh, like sheep without a shepherd. And, well, most of them don't know that they're lost. And yet God, God loves these people and he wants them found. So go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be starting off there this morning. Luke chapter 19, and we're going to be uh, looking at verses 1 through 10. And uh, just to give some context, this is coming towards the end of Jesus' life. Uh, He's on his way to Jerusalem, uh, where he's going to be entering into his final days, where he'll be arrested, crucified, and die, but then, we know, comes back to life. Thank Jesus, thank the Lord. And, uh, but before that, uh, he comes to Jericho, and this is, this is what it says. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was see- seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Lost people matter to God. He wants them found. This is... An obvious uh, statement, an obvious truth as we look at the story of Scripture. Uh, even going back to the garden, you see after Adam and Eve sin, uh, they go into hiding. They go into the trees and God goes and seeks them out and uh, provides a covering for them. And throughout the entire story, uh, we see this, this truth uh, coming to the forefront of God seeking out 
lost people, which is all of us. But we see it especially in the life of Jesus. And we have this explicit statement here that he says to Zacchaeus, the son of man, referring to himself, came to seek and save the lost. So Jesus explicitly says the reason why he came, that he came to seek and save lost people. Now, today is going to be kind of a combination of a sermon slash uh, a lot of sharing about Danielle and I's trip to uh, Uruguay. Now, uh, as, we, as we go along, I have some pictures, I have some maps, uh, just for, for you to kind of see. Uh, there's Uruguay in uh, southeastern South America. So for those who didn't know, there it is. Uh, that's the closest to Antarctica I've ever been, so we're still pretty far away, but uh, there it is. And here is a closer-up picture, closer picture of Uruguay itself. And at the very bottom, um, you, can see, you might be able to see, uh, but there is the capital city of Montevideo. So that's where uh, we flew in, and uh, we, we spent most of our time in Montevideo, and I'll get into a little bit more of, of where we went, uh, but just to give some background on Uruguay. Uruguay is a rather small country, um, both in size but also in population, only about 3.4 million people there, and it's often kind of lost in the mix between its neighbor to the north, Brazil, and its neighbor to the west, Argentina. And it's just kind of a country that's forgotten about. Um, you know, I, I don't know if this actually happened. I don't know with me, but maybe one of the other people on our team, when they said they were going to Uruguay, someone asked them, where in Africa is that? Um, that's Uganda you're thinking of. So, so just to give us uh, some perspective. And the thing about Uruguay, it is an extremely, extremely uh, secular country. Um, about half of the people that live in Uruguay would consider themselves atheistic or agnostic or non-religious. And uh, another interesting thing about it is when we think of South America, we typically think of Hispanic culture, uh, but Uruguay is actually has more European uh, culture in its roots. So it kind of formed as immigrants came uh, to that region, especially in World War I and World War II, coming from Italy and Spain and Germany and England. And so there's, it's a very unique country. It's not typically what you think of uh, when you think of a country in South America. Now, there is a complete separation of church and state in Uruguay. Um, it is illegal to have any kind of religious building uh, on government property. Keep that in mind whenever we come to something that I share later. And uh, if you want a picture of what most of Uruguay looks like, this is it. Most of Uruguay is rolling hills farmland. Lots of cows, lots of sheep. Uh, you can't really see it in this picture, but um, there's these little bird, or not little, they're called nyandu, and they're like mini ostriches. They're about this high, but they're not as, as tall. But uh, yeah, so this, this is what most of Uruguay looks like, this rolling countryside, lots of windmills and that kind of thing, um, and lots of good food. So this is our team that went. It was Danielle and I and two other pastoral couple, couples, Brian and Debbie Schmidt, who are in Hiawassee, Georgia, and then Caitlin and Joe Glover, who are currently in, uh, just outside of Phoenix, Arizona, and that's them in order. And on the right side is uh, Chris Giroux. He's our district missions mobilizer, and he was the one heading up the vision trip. 
Now, lost people matter to God. When we think of a country like Uruguay, um, there is some Catholic influence and there is some evangelical presence, but there is definitely a hardness towards the gospel. Um, especially in the capital city of Montevideo, where it's more affluent, there's this idea of uh, religion is beneath us, that it's kind of um, almost delusional or like, that, that's, you're, oh, you're a Christian, oh, you believe in God, oh, okay, that's, that's for you, but that's not for me. And so kind of what Ashley was saying, we, people don't even know their lost state. And so we have uh, international workers and a team being present there uh, to share the hope of the gospel because the people of Uruguay matter to God. Even in their hardness of heart, even in their resistance to the gospel, I mean, that's all of us at one point in our lives, right? We're all resistant. We're all hard of heart against the gospel, but the Lord sought us out and he saved us. And so we as a team had a privilege of going down and getting to see the ministry that God is doing there. And I share all these kind of, you know, negative things about the kind of spiritual and religious uh, environment there. But it was absolutely amazing to see the way that God was working uh, in and through our brothers and sisters in Christ down there. So this was us uh, coming into the airport in Montevideo. And we arrived... Um, probably about like 6.20 a.m. on Friday, and thankfully we were able to go and get a nap um, before we kind of had orientation for the day. But this is our first night. This is at one of the church plants in Montevideo uh, called El Estar, which is said that it could be translated as like the living room. And uh, that first night we had what's called an an asado, which is like a a big Uruguayan kind of meat grilling Fest, and it was amazing. So this is a picture of a lot of the international workers that we were with. Um, there are seven couples currently there, and actually within less than the next year, three of them are going to be coming off the field. Two are retiring, and then another couple um, are going to be going to Tekoa to serve in another ministry. But this is uh, some of what we got to eat. Uh, that, so Needless to say, we ate good. We ate very good. I think, like I said last week, I think it was the first mission trip I'd been on where I actually gained weight on the trip rather than, than losing weight. And you can see why, you know. So uh, that was our, our first night. We got to meet the entire team. And uh, just to get to know who they were, get to see their hearts. And uh, from there, uh, that set, off, set us off on a, a good trip. This was a really cool opportunity that we had. Um, as we had our trainings, uh, in the months leading up to the trip, um, at one point I asked the international workers, I said, hey, is there any way that, like, do you guys have like a wish list that we could, you know, bring stuff down and bless you with? And so uh, they sent a wish list out to our team, and we brought like probably like at least 20 jars of peanut butter like 25 bags of coffee, a um, bunch of candy and different snacks for the kids. There's, there's between the seven uh, couples of the international workers, there's, I think, 16 kids, 17 and under. So we had lots of candy. We also brought some Christmas gifts that grandparents sent along with us. And it was really awesome because uh, whenever you go on trips like this, 
you know, you know the international workers are taking time out of their regular rhythm um, to kind of to walk with you through the country and the different ministries. And so for us to come and be a blessing with them, they were absolutely blown away by how much stuff, because not only on that table, but you see behind, we had even more stuff there. And we had, we had brought so much stuff that literally uh, the regional director, or sorry, the, yeah, the regional director of South America was going to Paraguay for a, um, like a missions meeting, and he brought, we had so much stuff that he actually brought some to Paraguay. So our gifts overflowed into Paraguay um, to bless the international workers there as well. So that was, that was really cool to be able to bless the families there with just some, some goodies from, from home and things. Like, they don't have peanut butter there. And uh, one of the international workers said, you know, I had a spoonful of peanut butter today, and I didn't feel guilty at all. You know, because they have to ration it out. So that was a blessing to, to bless them in that way. Uh, this is a picture of Danielle with uh, some of the ladies. That's Caitlin and then Debbie Schmidt. And I, I can't remember the, the lady's name there. That's one of the um, Uruguayan Christians. That's part of one of the churches. And then Timbrel Hall. Uh, they just got to hear her story. Um, and I don't think it was her, but she was sharing about how in Uruguay, it's because it's very secular, it's very progressive in its politics, and so things like uh, abortion and uh, LGBTQ-related uh, issues, they, are on, they like to be on like, the cutting edge of that or kind of pride themselves in being like, one of the most progressive countries. And as they were speaking uh, with her, she was sharing the story of this woman who said she stopped counting after she had 13 abortions. One woman. And so think about the, the pain and the hurt and the trauma that this one woman may be carrying, is carrying, and she doesn't even know it because our soul, our body doesn't lie. We might be able to deceive ourselves, but our soul doesn't lie about the reality of, of human life. And one of the things that we heard is that the international workers, all of them said over and over again that there is a sense of hopelessness in Uruguay. There is an absolute, utter sense of hopelessness. And to me, that makes perfect sense. That's the logical conclusion, a logical outflow of a worldview that says God does not exist. So there's no ultimate meaning, value, purpose. And so there's going to be this sense of, of hopelessness. But thank God that lost people matter to him. The lost people of Uruguay matter to him, just like Zacchaeus mattered to Jesus. There wasn't anything in particular that was lovely about Zacchaeus. He was short. He was a tax collector. He was, he was rich, which, you know, he got rich by being a traitor to his own people, you know. And so, but yet Jesus called him by name and called him to himself and said, today salvation has come to this household. And so uh, it, we praise the Lord for the work that he is doing there in bringing hope to the lost people of Uruguay. Um, this is a map of the different alliance churches in Uruguay. As you see, most of them are actually in the north. Uh, so something about Uruguay, there's Montevideo, which is the capital city, and then every other part of the country that's not Montevideo is considered the interior. So most of the alliance churches are in the interior, especially in the north, uh, which is actually our first full day there. We made the six-hour drive all the way across the country to the border city of Rivera, which is on the border of Brazil. And we were visiting one of the Alliance churches there. 
and uh, they had, were having their 35th anniversary service, which they don't just have them for like big dates. They have them every single year. They have weekend anniversary service for uh, whenever their church was, was born. So this is us having merienda, which is kind of afternoon tea at the, uh, the church there. And um, the international worker to, or what are you guys facing? The left um, in the blue shirt, that's uh, Jimbo Hall. Uh, he was the, really the one heading up our trip, and he was the one that was uh, preaching, actually, at the service that night. And so um, this is a, a picture of the front, and you see the Alliance symbol. Again, it's just so cool to be able to go around the world to different countries and you know, see brothers and sisters in Christ in general, but to see Alliance family uh, in general and see that, that symbol, that Alliance symbol uh, around the world is just a really cool thing. Um, and then here's just another picture of us having uh, afternoon tea before the church service started at 8 o'clock and didn't get done till like 10, 15. And then we were going to dinner after that. So then we crossed over into Brazil and went to a Brazilian steakhouse for dinner. So once again, you see why I gained weight. That was the first two days of being in the country. But it was cool because in the city of Rivera... Um, this is where actually half of the Alliance churches are uh, in, in Uruguay. And when we first got to Rivera, the first thing that we did is actually we went to this, to this home where there's this, this little girl who was, uh, who was bedridden. Um, one of the Uruguayan Christians in Montevideo had heard about her. And the story is about her last September. Um, she was riding a scooter at home and fell and broke her arm. And she needed to get surgery. And so she went to get surgery, but the anesthesiologist used too much anesthesia. And so she can't speak. She can't get up. She's completely bedridden. And actually, uh, the entire city of Rivera, which is a smaller city, but they all know about this little girl, Augustina. And so they actually came together and raised money so that they could send the family to the United States in order to get better medical care because up in the north of the country, um, they don't have as good medical care. And nothing, nothing worked. Nothing could be done. So we went to this family's house. Um, they're, not, they're not in the picture, but we went to this house and we walk in and there's just this little girl laying there can't move, coughing, can't speak, just kind of a, a blank stare. And, th- and this was a little girl who was perfectly healthy just over a year ago. And so we were coming in the name of Jesus, seeking him as our healer for this family, and they're not even Christians. Uh, they have some, maybe some like family members are Christian, but they weren't. And uh, whenever we went to pray for her, I love the question that Jimbo asked. He said, what do you want to see Jesus do? He asked the mom this, what do you want to see Jesus do? And it blew me away that she didn't, she didn't say, I want her to get up and walk. I, don't, I want her to get up and run. She said, I just want her to be able to say mama. I just want her to say mama. And so week went, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we sat there, and we cried. And Augustina is still laying in bed. And she didn't say Mama. And that's one of those hard things that we wrestle with. It's like, Lord, this is a family that's, that's lost, that they don't know you. And if you just healed this little girl right now in Jesus' name, if she, 
not only said mama, but got up and started saying, mama, mama, wouldn't they all come to Christ? And so that's a hard thing that we wrestle with. It was a great trip, but there's also things like this that we're trusting God in his sovereignty, but we're gonna continue to pray that the Lord heals Augustina and that those who are lost will come to Jesus and be found in him. So if you think of Augustina, please be praying for her. But that was uh, an awesome opportunity for us to have in Rivera to, to be with this uh, church family and also to get to pray for this little girl, even though we didn't see Jesus heal her yet. So, uh, literally the next, hour, we went up one day, six hours, and the next day we came back down, and Danielle and I got to be with uh, the youth group, so I still was, we still were at youth uh, on Sunday night whenever we were there, and this is uh, a mixture of some of the international workers' kids plus some of the other uh, kids who are in their, um, in the youth group, and the boy uh, squatting down up front, his name is Juan, so he's this is back in Montevideo, by the way. He's from Rivera, but he's uh, such a good soccer player that he actually got recruited by one of the top teams in Uruguay to move down to Montevideo. They moved his whole family down to Montevideo so he get in the youth pro- program uh, to be built up to eventually become a professional soccer player. But it's cool because um, he actually was from one of the Alliance churches in Rivera and got connected with... Um, um, Matt Griffin, who's not in this picture, um, who's heading up the, the youth group. And so now he's uh, a part of the youth group. And he was very good, but you can tell he was kind of holding back because he didn't want to show us all up. But uh, it's cool to see the different ministries that they have. They have a youth ministry. They have a kids ministry. And you'll see some of the other things that uh, God is doing in and through Uruguay. And the, the tall guy uh, on the right in the green shirt. That's Daniel Greenfield. Him and his wife, Tori, uh, were serving in First Alliance Tacoa. He served as a youth pastor there for about six years, and now they've been in Uruguay, I guess, about that, that same length of time. So um, Danielle and I definitely got out of our comfort zone. Uh, Danielle played soccer. That's out of her comfort zone. And I had to do crafts, which is like way out of my comfort zone. So um, oh, but and I forgot one thing I forgot to mention about uh, Rivera. At the end of the service, it was this little tiny room was packed with like 80 people, and at the end they had all of us come forward and uh, to introduce ourselves and share. And I know like just enough Spanish to like introduce myself and introduce Danielle and say you know what I did. And I kind of had like some phrases memorized from our trip to El Salvador this summer. And so, like, everyone was sharing, and they were translating, and then I got it, and I just started rattling off, like, all the Spanish, and the international workers were like, whoa, like, I didn't know you knew Spanish, and so I was going, and then I was trying to say that we're happy to be here with you, and for those who know Spanish, I said, estamos triste, and I, and I was like, how do you say to be here, and one of the guys with us is like, you're sad to be here, and I was like, Feliz, we're happy to be here. So I, I told the entire church that we were sad to be with them for their 35th anniversary service. So that comes with language learning for those who want to learn a language. You're going to make yourself look foolish, but um, it, was, it, was, it was good. They were gracious. So uh, let's see what we got here next. So I'm going to spend most of the rest of the time talking about uh, the prison ministry. Now, it's interesting, uh, this is us, the men, uh, praying outside of this prison 
where uh, a group of Assemblies of God pastors, Uruguayan pastors, have been going for years and years and years. And about a year ago, there was a massive riot in the max, uh, maximum security area of the prison. Prisoners were killing each other. Uh, when the guards would come to the, the gates, the prisoners were throwing their excrement at the guards. I mean, it was just absolutely brutal. And so the guards were like, we're not going in there. So they sent the pastors, <laughs> said, you guys can go in there. And uh, there's just this long hallway, and you'll see a little bit later, um, and there's four different sectors. And the pastors, they just went to the bars of the sectors and just started preaching the gospel. And dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of prisoners received Christ. To the point that the, Uruguay is an extremely secular culture. The ground is hard. People don't come to Christ very easily. And there's not a lot of Christians. This prison has about 1,200 prisoners. 600 of them are followers of Jesus. 600 have started following Jesus in prison. So I'm going to share a little bit about what God is doing there. This is just absolutely unbelievable. Um, You remember earlier how I said that it's illegal to have a religious building on government property? This is a chapel that was built on the prison grounds in about 2015. Something interesting about the prison, most of the guards were female. The director of the prison is a female. She's not a Christian. But these pastors have been going there for years. It was actually even before they went. For about 12 years, these two women went to the prison and prayed for it, prayed for it, met with prisoners. Barely, if any, came to Christ. And then... God started doing a new work there. And some of the pastors, they started a thing called the evangelical community. And as prisoners came to Christ, they were discipling them. And then the director saw the change in the prisoners. She's like, okay, here's what we'll do. I'm going to give you barracks number one. That's going to be a Christian barracks, all right? So all the Christian prisoners, they can live there. And we'll see how it goes. And, and we'll go from there. Well, it went so well that they completely renovated barracks one. And she said, okay, now barracks number two is also a Christian barracks. And this is in minimum security area. So now there's two Christian barracks in minimum security right next to this chapel. And uh, this is uh, Brian Schmidt preaching during the first chapel service. And you can, I mean, see all these, these men. And this is, this is two days before Brian had his heart attack. So, I mean, it's just incredible so this is the first service, and then this is the second service, which is kind of hard to tell, but it, it was packed full with even more. It's probably 80 to 90 prisoners in here, and they just kept bringing more benches, more benches. Now, if you see on the left-hand side, there's two guys standing up there. Uh, the one on the right is me, and I wanted to share this story because it was absolutely just mind-blowing. I was standing there, and um, it, it hit me that most of you probably don't know this, but my dad, when he was my age, he was in prison. And my dad met Jesus and started following Jesus in prison. And as I was standing there, I was like, I really sent, and I wasn't queued up to preach. I wasn't going to be preaching, but I was like, I really think the Lord just wanted me to like share about my dad's story. So what happens is I'm standing there. Uh, the one guy finishes preaching, 
And then one of the Uruguayan uh, prisoners, he gets up and he confesses before everyone that he got in a fight with some guy that was in the back corner, but they were good now. And, you know, but he just wanted to confess that. And um, some of the international workers said when he sat down, he was like, he just could see the weight coming off his shoulders. Well, then this guy stands up next and he gets up and confesses that he had been doing drugs um, and I don't know all what else, but that he, he hadn't been doing it for a couple weeks and he just wanted to publicly confess that. Now, this is during the second chapel service. Between the services, um, the guy on the right who's holding his hand up, that's Pastor Alfredo. I was talking to him and told him I was a youth pastor. So this is right after I'm thinking, wow, I need to, I need to share about my dad, but I'm, I'm not going to be speaking. I'm sitting there, and then someone starts nudging me after this guy confesses his sin, and Pastor Alfredo is pointing at me in the back corner. He says, tells me to come up, and I'm like, I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> and so the uh, Mark Tobby on the left, he says, uh, so he just, you know, confessed that he's doing drugs, and he said, because... Uh, He's, he's a young guy, he's a youth, and you're a youth pastor, I want you to pray for him. And so, this is us praying for him, I led us in prayer, prayed 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and prayed for God's cleansing and blessing over his life. And finished praying, and I was like, well, I'm up here, this is my shot, you know, the Lord was putting on my heart. And so I said to Mark, I said, can I, can I share? He's like, I don't know. So we asked Alfredo. He's like, go ahead. So I stood up and I said, my dad was in prison whenever he was my age. My dad was in your place. And Jesus came and met my dad and saved my dad in prison. And now I'm a pastor, and look at what God has done in my dad's life and in the lives of his children. And I told them, I said, you may never get out of here, but when you're in here, you can be the light of Christ to all the other prisoners in here. But some of you may get out, and when you do, you get to go back to your families, your communities, your wives, your sons, your daughters, your brothers, your sisters, and you are now ambassadors for Jesus Christ in this world. And it was just, it was like unbelievable how God orchestrated that. And just to share, I mean, I probably only preached five, seven minutes, but just to share that the hope that there is in Jesus, the hope for those who are lost because they matter to God. These, these, are, these are murderers. These are rapists. These are people that we count off as too far gone. And yet, we were standing with them, worshiping Jesus as brothers in Christ. And I wanted to share that hope with them. So, this is uh, minimum security. It's so hard. There's so many things to share. But this is, I mean, look how full this is. This is in prison, in Uruguay. This doesn't happen. So then we go to max security, the same place where the riots were happening last year, and we get, go down the hall, and we, they didn't actually let us into the sectors, which were big open rooms, two stories with rooms all the bo- around the bottom and the top. And we get there, and Jimbo's like, 
they're asking for someone to preach. You guys are like, hurry up, Wes, finish preaching. And these prisoners are begging for someone to come and share the gospel with them. And so they're like, Wes, they're like, what you just shared in chapel, get up there. So I just stepped up and started preaching. I mean, and there was about 20 guys that came forward, and some of them had become Christians, some hadn't, but it was just they wanted to hear the gospel. And they were, some of them were asking, hey, how do we get into the Christian barracks? We want out of max security. Because <laughs> there's an application process they can go through and that kind of thing. But it was, it was just amazing. This is max security. And then we went to another sector, and this is Brian Schmidt preaching through the bars to these prisoners. And, and what I said to the prisoners, I said pretty much the same thing, but I said to them this. I told them about my dad, but I said, there are people outside of this prison that are in more bondage than you. Because the real prison for all of us is our hearts. The real prison for all of us is the sin and the bondage in our hearts. And that in Jesus, we can find freedom. We can be free And I told him, you can be free even if you never leave this place. And that's the hope that we have in Jesus. Now, one thing that was interesting, as we were leaving this area, um, you know, I was putting my hands to the bars and shaking all the hands, saying, Dios te bendiga, Dios te bendiga, God bless you, God bless you. And I put my hand, I went over to like a sector at the end, because we didn't really go down there and I was doing it. And I put my hand out to the one guy, and he like didn't put his hand out, and I put it again. He said, no, estoy con Lucifer said, I'm with Lucifer. And so, this is, there's still darkness there. There's still spiritual warfare going on. Um, but, this is us praying. The, all the group, this is something I love. They would just randomly start just everyone praying at once. And we all crowd around the bars and put our hands on the bars and put our hands to the bars. They put their hands and we're just praying in the name of Jesus for these young men, that they'd be discipled in faith. I mean, some of these guys look like they're 17, 18, and I have no idea what they've been in there for. But then, this was at the very end. This is max security. Let's see if this works. This little video. Come on. Well, can we get it to work? I don't know if it'll play or not. No go? All right. Well, <laughs> that, this was a video of, once again, we're not even in the Christian barracks. This is max security. This is a video of the prisoners singing worship songs to Jesus. There's about 20 or 30 of them. And then behind them are all the other prisoners who haven't come to know Jesus yet or not. And they're seeing all these other men singing the praises of Jesus' name. Because lost people matter to God and Jesus went and he sought them out and he found them in prison. And it didn't just magically happen, but he sent his people. He sent his ambassadors representing Jesus to share the gospel with these men who have no hope. 
And so, oh, I've lost connection. Um, it won't advance for me. Oh, there we go. So that's, that's the majority of what I'm, I mean. There's so many things I could share, but I wanted to share about what God is doing in Uruguay in so many different ways. And I mean, I didn't mention all the different sports ministries that the adults are involved in, but I wanted to share about what God is doing in this prison amongst the people that, that we would think, no, it, it couldn't be. And so, as we kind of wrap this all together, you know, how do all these core values connect? Um, I just was reflecting on them and just think, think about it in this way. How do all these different core values connect to the fact that lost people matter to God, that he wants them found? Well, I just said, if knowing and obeying God's word is fundamental to all true success, then we must stay grounded in his word and not waver on the reality of the lostness of each person. If prayer is our primary work, then we need to be praying for the lost. If we can do nothing without the Holy Spirit, we need his empowerment to reach the lost. If we're called to complete the great commission of finding the lost, we need every follower of Jesus fully devoted to him and mobilized for his mission. So that's you, each of you, each of us. If everything we have is God's and we are his stewards, we need to make sure our resources, both individually, each of you individually, but also corporately as a body, are being used to seek out and find the lost, those who matter to God. And finally, if we're serious about achieving God's purpose of finding the lost, we need to be willing to take faith filled risks and the hard part is that always involves change I have no idea what that looks like for you as an individual or for us as a body necessarily but the reality is lost people matter to God and so they they need to matter to us too each of us knows people whether family or friends or acquaintances or neighbors or people you don't like that much who are lost without this light. But we also know there are people that we don't know that are lost, that we need to be reaching out to in our own community, but also abroad. And so there's going to be opportunities in these coming weeks for us to participate through giving. We're going to have different options uh, for how we can support God's mission around the world through giving. Uh, Also, there's different opportunities for outreach to our own community that are coming together, and so we're excited to see where God leads for those. But there's one that I really want to challenge us on, Um, especially parents and grandparents. Because one of the things that we heard, and I shared last week while we were there, is that not a single Alliance mission field is at critical mass in terms of meeting the number of international workers necessary to fully carry out the ministry that they're there for. Not a single field around the entire world And so, our prayer is Luke 10.2, where Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so, this is the challenge. We need laborers. There aren't enough. The harvest is plentiful. 
And we just had 40 children up here on stage. We just saw the next generation of international workers. We just saw the next generation of pastors, whatever that may look like. We saw the next generation of those who are going to be bringing this hope to the lost. Because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, which was you and me at one point, or maybe you still now. And so we as his people now go, as his ambassadors, seeking the lost, so that, not that we can save them, but that, so that Jesus can. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the Lord of the harvest. We thank you, Jesus, that lost people matter to you so much. We thank you that you leave behind the 99 to go after the one, Lord. And so we pray that you would do so. We pray that you would continue to bring your sheep into your, into your fold, that you would call them out of each nation, God, and that where there are, there are not any representatives of you amongst the nations, Lord, please raise up more workers to go into the harvest field. We beg you, Jesus. We want people to know this hope. We want people to be free of the bondage that they're in. Lord, because this is why you came. You came to seek and save the lost. We love you, and we thank you, and pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen, that was it. And there was another one they kept singing. I victoria, I victoria, I victoria en el nombre de Jesús. There's victory, there's victory, there's victory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go in the victory of Jesus and carry the hope to the lost.